Hello, I'm your host, Glenn Warren, and welcome to the Seasons Eatings Podcast. Welcome to a bonus episode for our Christmas in July season. Sugar is part of our natural life. It seems to be ubiquitous to most of the foods we eat, but it seems during the holidays, sugar seems to be especially prevalent. Usually around the end of October, sugary treats make their appearance. It marks the beginning of the holiday season. The time of year where many people toss out their healthy snacks and reach for the sugary treats, whether it be candy, cookies, pies, or drinks. There's just so many sugary temptations. I mean, you can't say no to grandma's sweet potato pie or those sugar cookies with the buttercream frosting you made with the kids, right? I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Neil Buttery to talk about his new book, The Dark History of Sugar. His book focuses upon the role of the slave trade in sugar production and looks beyond it to how the exploitation of the workers didn't end with emancipation. It reveals the sickly truth behind the detrimental impact of sugar's meteoric popularity on the environment and our health. Advertising companies during Christmas peddle their sugar-laden wares to children with fun cartoon characters, but the reality is not so sweet. So please join me as I talk with Dr. Neil Buttery and explore the dark history of sugar. So welcome, Neil, to the podcast. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. You started out as a secondary school teacher and you Mm. went and got your degree in evolutionary biology or is it mm-hmm. science just a basic science degree i got i went to university at 18 like a lot, a lot of people did uh, did a bio a general biology degree and then went straight off to secondary school teaching expecting to be doing that for the rest of my life <laughs> it's not what happened <laughs> but but now you have a a history of british food blog so how did you jump from teaching children to going to talking about food and creating food blogs well, I went around the houses, that's for sure. What happened was um, I kind of climbed the ladder a little bit um, teaching and I felt that I had kind of done, I felt like I'd done it. You know, you just get that kind of feeling sometimes where you go, oh, okay, I've done what I needed to do. I didn't realize that, but I have a feeling that I want to move on. I'd really got into uh, evolutionary biology um, at the end of my degree and wanted to revisit that. So I, I left teaching, went and did a, a master's degree and then a PhD in evolutionary biology. And it's social evolution that I, I looked at. So the, the evolution of social, cooperative or altruistic behaviors in societies and how they're men- maintained. Um, okay. There's a big anthropological link. And there's surprisingly, actually, there's a lot of links with food there. Um, uh, especially when it comes to the social side of eating and, and community. But what I did was I, yeah, I've been teaching high school students, but I hadn't been doing real, real science in invert commas yeah. for a long time. And I knew I'd be writing a lot for my PhD. So I thought I should practice writing and kind of get over that fear of the flashing cursor or the empty page oh, yes. that we all have. The, the dreaded blank page of every writer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, well, actually, I, it was a friend who suggested um, 
writing a blog. I didn't even think to write the blog, but I'd come up with a project of cooking every recipe in English food. It's a book by Jane Grigson. And I chose it because I didn't really cook that much English or British food. Okay, uh, so you didn't grow up cooking at home with your parents? Well, or... uh, well, yes, but fairly standard fare, shepherd's pie, right. Sunday roasts. Yeah. Um, and we're eating a lot of things that kind of come via other countries, like lasagna or, you know, pasta, which, I, well, you could argue that they're <laughs> British as well now, but yeah, it was... <laughs> a good curry. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, sure. <laughs> So I started cooking the recipes and it was a friend of mine that said, why don't you write this as a blog? And I'd not really seen any blogs, but I thought, oh, this is a great way of getting over this fear of the blank page. So I thought, oh, I'll just write a little review of every recipe. Uh, So that's what I did. Um, I did my PhD. I went off and did a postdoc um, stint over in the US. I was in Houston, uh, Texas for a year and uh, St. Louis, Missouri for a year. And I carried on cooking all this British food. I started my second blog, which is the kind of the more popular blog, which most people know, British Food of History. And I was cooking on my American friends, roly-poly puddings. Okay. <laughs> all, all sorts of capon, you know, things that were really traditional, old, standard British fare, but centuries ago. And they all really liked it. And that was the point at which I thought, hmm, maybe I could make this into some kind of career. So I moved back to to Britain, back to Manchester. I'm, I'm from Yorkshire, from Leeds in Yorkshire. Okay. I, was, I was living in Manchester before I went to the US. Right. And yeah, I, I resigned from my job. And in that four weeks I had of, you know, doing my notice in the lab, I planned setting up a little artisan market stall, which I did as soon as I arrived back. I didn't want to wait a few months because I knew I'd probably chicken out. So I just wanted to mm-hmm. get back into old Belighty. I get working straight away. And well, I kind of haven't stopped since. That was August 2012. So in your market store, what did you sell? I did uh, old-fashioned pâtés, which are called meat pastes in old books, which doesn't sound very appetizing, (laughs) but it's basically pâté. Sticky toffee puddings. Uh, I discovered from writing my blog all these delicious a 17th and 18th century tart, which I nice. made into patisserie, as well as things that you would be more familiar with, perhaps like custard tarts and sticky toffee pudding. So there's a, there's a mix of familiar and unfamiliar. That progressed that stall onto becoming a pop-up restaurant or a supper club right. rather at home. I shove all my furniture upstairs once a month for a long <laughs> weekend, bringing <laughs> tables and chairs. That and that eventually then became a um, a proper bricks and mortar restaurant, a kind of bar restaurant, uh, also okay. in Manchester, and that was around two years. And all this time, I was doing little bits of writing, little bits of uh, media work, but not very much. But we, the the restaurant, yeah, two years it was open, and then just by happenstance, really, I've done none of this with any big plan in mind. Things started to move towards the writing. And I got, uh, yeah, I've started to get more writing jobs and and publishers uh, interested in my work. It's only taken uh, 15 years. So you were running the restaurant and dealing with all that full, like business side of things and staffing and cooking mm-hmm. and writing the blog at the same time. Mm-hmm. 
Well, the, just... bl- the blog was sadly ignored for that two years. <laughs> I probably did a post every three months or something. <laughs> well, I mean, drips and jabs, at least you kept it up. I tried to keep it up, um, yeah. Yeah, it's just... And then after a while, you said, okay, I'm getting good at this writing thing. I should leave the, the restaurant business on the wayside? Well, we had to close after two years. That was not a choice. Uh, it was nothing to oh. do with our uh, management of the business, but various boring reasons yeah <laughs> which i won't go into uh yeah so I, well i was a bit depressed about having to close it especially when it wasn't our fault right so but i spent a few months moping around but uh luckily uh i got in contact or rather pen and sword history got in contact with me and asked if i was up for writing any books and i said yeah right because you, <laughs> you just finished going through the jane grigson cookery book yeah, I've almost finished. I've got, I've got five recipes which have proved tricky to cook. 450 okay. recipes in the book, and I've, there's five that I'm having real trouble with. <laughs> and so you stopped that blog and then started the British Food History blog. Yeah, that's been going about 10 years, I, I would say, the Food History blog. Because I, I found cooking the Jane Grigson blog, although it was great because she taught me how to cook. I didn't realize yeah. it as I was doing it. I also felt a little bit hemmed in. I couldn't just write an essay on something to do with food history because there wasn't right. a recipe in the book that would, you know, be a, a good marry up. And sometimes, yeah, I just wanted to write an essay. Or oh, she'd missed lots of things out, which should have been in there as well. So I started the second one up really just so I could um, fill in those gaps, I suppose. But that's the okay. one that became, that's become uh, much more popular. I mean, I've done many episodes on. British sort of Christmas foods and a lot of I've looked at all the old cookbooks and like the form of curry written in what 1360 or something like that mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and then a few others like Hannah Glass's cookbooks and stuff and you have to make a few cognitive leaps for the recipe sort of you know do this and then do this I'm like well what happens in between <laughs> yes you know? I mean people tend to um you know, food historians, whether they're uh, professional ones or, or you know, uh, amateur ones at home, get less and less confident as you go further back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because there's fewer, like ground almonds and mix it fine. I'm like, what does that mean? What make them fine almonds or mix it well? Or <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> indeed, or things like great. A lot of recipes, especially around Hannah Glass's time, start with things like great a penny loaf. How big was a yeah. penny loaf? What is a penny loaf? <laughs> yeah, <That> was... <laughs> so yes, there was. if you go right back to form of curry, there's almost nothing to go on, really. Yes. It's, it's more just a reminder. Yeah, that's true. It's a reminder rather, for the cooks of the time how to mm. make something. It was assumed that you could already cook. <laughs> so it was just a reminder. Or, you know, what was mentioned in the recipe, recipe in inverted commas, because it's not a recipe how we would judge one now yeah it's just say oh this is how we do it a bit different in our place so right it's very vague about the main recipe but then goes into detail about you know one particular thing i assume because that's the thing that's different yeah i'm assuming if you if you have if you have enough affluence to have staff writing a cookbook for you or um you know how how our kitchen works type of book you don't you already know you have the wherewithal to have staff to know what they're doing. Exactly. <laughs> if you pick up that cookbook. Exactly. And the form <laughs> of curry was um, King Richard II's um, cooks who, yes. um, who wrote that. 
or probably dictated <laughs> it actually to some scribes. They've probably would have been um, they'd have been highly skilled, but almost certainly completely illiterate. So going through your your uh, food history blog, like why did you pick sugar as a history to research? Well, I didn't choose it actually. Um, oh. Penn and saw <laughs> no, I had I have written about sugar in the past and found it such a big subject that it wasn't really. I didn't feel it was a subject that was um, appropriate for my blog. I have a rule that um, I have a maximum of 1,000 words per post, so I don't waffle. And it was such a big subject that I thought, well, I did a couple. But, yeah, I think I wrote a little bit about sugar loaves and kind of the the fun side of it, I suppose, and left the serious side well alone because... Yes, that the blog wasn't the right place. But I was asked to do it, uh, and I had a little think. And I thought, yes, it, you know, it's, it's something I've been interesting. It, it was something that was very, uh, it's very much in the news yes. you know, at the moment for the past few years. So I thought, oh, okay, do you know what? I will have a go at that. And off I went and did a bit of research uh, to fill in the gaps, you know, that I had in my knowledge and found it was mainly gaps with very little knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> the gaps were there for a reason. Because, well, because you think you know, and it turns out that you, yes. you really don't know. So it was quite a challenge, but um, one that I really relished. And just as I started my initial research and kind of forming the book, because I was just kind of given full reign to do whatever I liked for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it was maybe January 2020. So three months away from lockdown. I didn't know it at the time. (laughs) So so I was lucky, I suppose, that the um, coronavirus came around as it does. Sorry for sounding glib. No, I mean, mean, a lot of good things came out of us having a lot of spare time. I suddenly, you know, I had lockdown and a book to write. And it just, um, for me, came at just the right time which is a yeah. horrible thing to say, but from a personal level. I mean, lots of people have the same same kind of story. They made the best of a, a, a bad situation. I mean, that's part of it. Like, as, as you said, when life, uh, all the sort of trappings of life of work and all that stuff get shoved to the wayside, you actually have all this time to do what you really want to do for a lot of people. It's like, Absolutely. you know, so travel and or i mean follow your passion as much as you can and at your moment you had your passion of researching sugar <laughs> yeah and i'm fairly um misanthropic <laughs> so i quite like just sitting in on my own <laughs> i did i did get that kind of cabin fever that a lot of people a lot of people had i i as an aside i still want to get a shirt that says covid may be over but i still want you to stay six feet away from me mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> indeed um so i mean obviously sugar now is so ubiquitous you can get it practically anywhere any quarter shop any yeah. grocer i mean but before i mean we had sugar had to be imported um and sugar was more of a luxury item right because we could nowadays sugar is made from mostly corn Yes, in North, in North America, and, yeah, corn, corn syrup. And in Canada, one. we have sugar beets that yes. are grown in uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan. And like 80% of our sugar that's made here 
is made from sugar beets. Mm -hmm. All the imported sugar is made from sugar cane. Yeah. So that's the same situation in the UK. Yeah, we've got quite a a flourishing sugar beet uh, industry because you can grow it in temperate areas. In fact, it prefers temperate areas. Yeah, tropical uh, tropical climes, unlike the sugar cane. Yeah, I mean, without kind of skipping to the end <laughs> of, of of the <laughs> book, you know, if if you have the choice between sugar cane and and sugar beet, go sugar beet. Okay, there's yeah, much, there's much less water to remove to grow it. Um, you've got to boil away a lot of water from the juices, you know, sugar cane or sugar beet. And it's done fairly quickly. There's very few, it doesn't really need high temperatures. Right. And it's often done with, <clears throat> when you buy sugar cane uh, in your local store, there's loads of different kinds. There's demerara sugar, light brown sugar, dark brown sugar, yeah. muscovado, molasses. And in yeah. Britain, there's golden syrup. There's all these things, all these various byproducts or uh, or stages in the process where, you know, they're it, it, stages in the refinement process. So there's a whole yes. load of different sugars you can get. You might not have noticed when you go into a store, there's only one kind of sugar, beet sugar, and that's white. There's, yes, no, there's white nothing in sugar. between. <laughs> because it's so easy to extract. Sugar, yeah. sugar cane, if you um, squeeze... A lot of sugar cane juice through the mills. There's for every um, seven kilos of sugar cane juice, you have to boil away five kilos of water to get two kilos. Oh wow! Of sugar. Okay, that's similar to uh, maple syrup. Um, mm, I bet for every liter of maple syrup, you have to boil away. It's forty to one, basically. So you need forty layers of sap. 40 yeah. liters of sap to make one liter of maple syrup. Wowzers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I didn't realize aside. you had to boil away that much. And you didn't yeah. have to boil away a lot. But the thing is, um, proper maple syrup anyway, comes with a price tag. Yes. Yeah, you can get the uh, augmented <laughs> maple syrup. That's not really pure well you can but if you if you can buy the proper stuff then you know uh you know it is rather more expensive than the other sugars it's still not crazy expensive no it's, it's much more expensive than white sugar is and and as a weird aside they did some research because we have a canada has a maple syrup reserve um we actually have a bank we're not like a literal bank but a place where we store excess maple syrup for mm-hmm. tra- for export during the year, mm-hmm. but they, uh, they were researching it and they found that squirrels in the area, cause maple syrup is usually in Quebec and, uh, the Northeastern United States, um, squirrels would bite a piece of the maple bark off the tree, mm-hmm. wait for the sap to come out and then leave it for a few days for it to crystallize and sort of harden. Mm-hmm. So it'd make their own little syrup gum that they would chew off. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, sorry, I get sidetracked. Um, I mean, I always thought that growing up, because maybe it's North American centric, I thought that sugar came from like the Caribbean areas. But you had talked about sugar being started in Asia. Yeah, it's a common misconception that sugar cane comes from the New World. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah, because of course, that's where the vast majority of it was made. But yeah, it started off uh, approximately 8,000 BC in New Guinea. Um, oh, okay. Although it's reckoned the New Guineans 
got the sugar cane from the Philippines, maybe. Right. It's so distant that you can't really tell. That's what people think. And they grew sugar cane. They selectively bred it a little bit because they consumed it as a snack just to chew on. So they selectively bred right. it to have um, less of a woody exterior. Because sugar cane is like bamboo. You know, it's a great big grass. So it's yeah, it looks exterior. like a big stalk. Yeah. So if you just want to sit and chew that, it's far too woody. So they uh, selectively bred it to be thinner, easy to chew. And that's pretty much where the story ends for them. They, they, they were also growing bananas, actually, um, for the first time. They were quite... Uh, In New Guinea. Yeah. And yams. Oh, okay. So, you know, they produced quite a few initial um, uh, commodity foodstuffs and crops. Yeah, they were... They knew what they were doing. But, I mean, the sugar cane is... Was it a natural grass in the area? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, okay. So yep. they just sort of did a little bit of genetic modification to make it sweeter. They just, um, well, they just selectively bred it. So just bred the ones with the thinnest rinds on them. And that's oh, okay. About it. It's not naturally yeah. high in sugar. Naturally high in sugar is sugar cane. Yeah. There is selective breeding. There is a little bit of genetic manipulation when you get to you know, modern history, but as far right. as things go for the bulk of the, the dark history of sugar anyway, it's, uh, there wasn't actually that much artificial selection from, for higher sugar, um, yields. It was more for, um, they wanted to keep things difficult for the slaves. They didn't want to make things easier, but we'll get on, of course. To, we'll get onto that. <laughs> we'll get onto that. We've got a way to go. Yeah. We get onto that. Uh, but yeah, so anyway, the, New Guinea, they're happily growing sugar cane. And if you've ever grown something like bamboo in a, your garden, you'll know that it's a fairly aggressive weed, really. And it yes, takes it grows, over. It can grow up to a, like a foot a day in good conditions. Yeah, and it sends out little <laughs> um, little tendrils. tendrils out, yeah, to, yeah. you know, and ends up popping up all over the place. And that's what sugar cane does. So it's spread east, sorry, westwards to mainland. Asia, China, and India. Okay. Whether that was through trade or just on its own, we don't know. It really could be oh, either. Okay. It could be. So it's either. not trading through like this the Silk Road with the spices and all that time. No, no, because it's not a product at this point. It's just a cane. There's no sugar yet. It's oh, just okay. the juice. They're just sucking the juice out. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's India where it first gets made sugar. Um, Boiled down to um, a kind of a brown gum, which crystallizes into a quite hard brown sugar. It's called gur, but it more commonly goes by the name jaggery these days. At least it does in the UK. Yeah, I've heard that before. I've heard that as a foodstuff, and I, I can't remember where it's It's really it popular uh, ingredient in Thai food, for example. Okay. You do the hot, salty, sweet, and sour thing. In, yeah. in Asia, the sweet yeah. more often than not comes from um, jaggery. So, so it's all this sort of um, all the moisture is taken out of the sugar juice. Yes, but it's not refined. Like a... Yeah, so they boil it down, and it becomes very important, revered in in the Hindu culture. But again, nothing much happens until okay. fast forward to maybe the seventh century. And all of a sudden, you've got in the Middle East, uh, the burgeoning Muslim, medieval Muslim empire. And they yes. almost appear fully formed 
the scripture, the first scriptures and, and material that we find in the seventh century describe sugar making and it describes sugar making like, yeah, a little plantation that we would recognize today. We assume they got the information from India right? because nowhere else is making it. <laughs> so we assume it traveled. And they would probably naturally trade with India. Yes. Yes. The, um, Alexander the Great had gone over a bit and brought some back, but it didn't really get okay. any um, any real traction there f- for some reason. Quite a few people found it, brought it back home, and people went, yeah, that's nice, yeah, yeah. whatever. <laughs> I've got my honey, I'm good. <laughs> exactly. But then all of a sudden, <laughs> pow, 7th century, the medieval Muslim empire is just churning out loads of sugar, so it's got a little, uh, little cottage industry, basically, multiplied over and over again. Growing wow. their sugar canes, uh, grinding them down in essentially um, two two round bits of stone, like you would yeah. uh, if you're grinding corn or something like that, yeah. and collecting like the juice bo- and boiling it down, and making okay. fairly refined sugar. As they move through northern Africa and uh, northern Africa and southern Europe, so around the Mediterranean, they move around and they take over the whole of North America, most of the Mediterranean islands, and then Spain and Portugal. And wherever they go, they are growing sugarcane. So it really begins to cover the Mediterranean. And then it starts getting into like the courts of all the kings and queens of the... A a little bit. They're they're making it for their own consumption, as it were, actually. So they're just selling them to other places within the Muslim empire. Some was leeching out, but not in any great deal. You have to go to the uh, 11th century and the the Second Crusade. So the times of Henry II, so High Middle Ages... Pointy hats, pointy shoes, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And yeah, uh, Henry II and, and his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, went on the Second Crusade and brought back sugar. It went round the courts. It went both the, through the king's courts and the queen's courts. And then it really began to gain some traction at that point. That's when people really decided that they liked it and they wanted right. to get more of it. And I suppose yeah, that's where they see. I see pictures of, you know, medieval feasts and stuff like that. And I see these little sort of, they look like little towers Mm -hmm. and they're sugar cones, right? Well, they're probably sugar sculptures. Oh, okay. I I wouldn't have thought, unless you can very quickly find the picture that you're talking about. (laughs) um, (laughs) I would have, usually the sugar loaves didn't come up to the kitchen up to the kitchen up, up to the um up to the, the dining area yeah okay it's all chipped away and ground down laboriously oh, by so the they staff. would import the they would import the sugar as a loaf yes yes and that'd be all ground down in bits okay. you, you know you, what a nightmare of a job that must have been i know because some, 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 some of the rest some of the recipes ask for boy. essentially um icing sugar um confectioner's sugar yes yeah so to turn a sugar loaf into icing sugar by hand. Yeah. Ugh. Some poor slob has to spend hours yeah. grinding away. So I I suspect what you've seen in those pictures on, on actual dining tables are probably the um, sugar subtleties, the sugar sculptures that they made. Oh, okay. Uh, often it was um, houses or pyramids or uh, animals. 
Yes, which you would just eat. You'd have usually three courses. After the second course, you bring in the subtlety course, which is just a load of food you just look at. Yeah. <laughs> and then it goes away. It looks pretty. Yeah. No <laughs> one was eating these sugar sculptures because it was just far too expensive. Right. Far too expensive. Um, fast forward a little bit to um, Henry III. Henry III, if you don't know, you obscure medieval kings. <laughs> Henry III was the son of bad King John of Robin Hood. Oh, okay. Nice. Um, he liked his sugar, but in the whole of the English realm, there was probably the equivalent of maybe two bags of sugar. Wow. In the whole of the realm. So we are talking so, real um, elitist food here. Right. But they're not, I mean, I'm looking at the old recipes from Form of Curry and stuff, and they're not using sugar as just in desserts. They're using it everywhere. Yeah, so you so um, 1380s. <laughs> that's when you first start getting a real um, reorganization, I suppose, of how the sugar's made, and they make okay. it much more efficiently. It's still pretty inefficient. I mean, it's pretty inefficient to the end of slavery, right? <clears throat> um, when suddenly there were no slaves to do the work, so they had to. Make machines, make, to, make do machines it. to do it instead, yeah. <laughs> um, and I've lost my thread. What was I saying? That's okay. I mean, I, sugar is not, uh, it's considered like a savory uh, spice, really, as we would today. We'd kind of add it to almost everything. Yes. To sort of enhance food. Yeah, and it really does do that. Um, you know, if you ever make a tomato sauce, we have pretty insipid tomatoes in, in England. Yeah, it gets fairly acidic. It does get acidic, and it's amazing what a pinch of sugar will do to a tomato sauce for for pasta or something. That's true, and I mean the opposite side of it as well. I mean, if you take a a chocolate cookie and add a little bit of salt, you got that sort of you know back and forth sort of uh, combination to give you sweet and salt at the same time. Yeah, it's a magic combination, so. and it's it's the two flavors. Um, you know, ma- uh, mass producing uh, food manufacturers have uh, in their arsenal because if you want to make a chili for a supermarket for example so they expect everyone to buy one or huge amounts of people to buy them it can't be that hot it can't be yeah. that strong tasting you have to pair it off back plus they're going to add as much water as possible yeah because water doesn't cost anything <laughs> for weight mm-hmm. um <laughs> so all you've got really is sugar and salt as as flavor enhancers and so afterwards we have medieval england Mm-hmm. sugar is kind of catching on everywhere. And so they're kind of figure out how can we make this in mass quantities? Yeah. I mean, so, so <laughs> during this time, they've, the, the crusaders um, have taken back the Mediterranean islands and basically okay. just ousted the, um, the Muslim empire and just taken over. You okay. use their equipment taken over and they're happily deforesting as they go, as they move westward. They can't go eastward because there's a great big desert that way. Yeah. So they've got to go westward. They get to Spain and then they get to Madeira and the Canary Islands. So that's kind of northwest, uh, off the coast of northwestern Africa. It's the very edges of the known world. And they only only went there because they wanted to deforest those islands. (laughs) What's really need wood. What's so crazy? (laughs) I mean, I know. We know a lot more now when it comes to pollution and cl- climate change and things like that. 
But it just never occurred to them that chopping all these trees down was in any way a bad thing. From what I oh no, see, it, I, it happens in Canada as well. I mean, they basically went westward, took all the trees out of the plains and the you know just before the mountains, and they wondered why the water levels went up when it flooded. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. oh <laughs> stuff yeah, like that. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. The, the but hey, hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> it is. But what was odd was all they so they, they cut down the trees and they just thought, oh, there's more space for more sugar plantations. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. You can make uh, money. Yeah, it was only when they got to Madeira and then they'd essentially run out of wood. Uh, and it was making sugar really expensive. So it, it got cheaper around form of curry time, 14th century. Yep. And it kind of it had difficulties in, in decreasing in value after that because we were stuck in the very fringes of the known world. But then, so is that how they expanded to the Caribbean and that area of the world? That's it. They didn't have worried <laughs> because <laughs> off Columbus went to find his passage to India and found a new 1492. world. 1492. From the, <laughs> point, from the point of view of sugar, the important date is 1493 because that's his second voyage. Oh, okay. And that's when he took with him um, a load of cuttings, sugar sugarcane cuttings, and a load of pioneers to go with him to uh, to go on um, Hispaniola. Yeah, that was the island they they set up camp, as it were. And well, they didn't get sugar set up straight away. They mined for gold and set right. the. Um, Set the indigenous races there to uh, to work in the in the coal mines. Uh, so the the initial slaves, at least slaves in large numbers, were the indigenous indigenous people of uh, the West Indies. Okay, so those are your first. How did slaves. they come to having um, a side business of creating sugar plantations? I guess. <laughs> well, it went all horribly wrong for them. <laughs> They, there was no planning. They were just greedy. They were, I mean, they, they, were, they were so cruel and, you know, to, to the, the poor people of the indigenous races who had no um, concept of land ownership. So right. in walks um, Christopher Columbus with a letter from the king saying, we've got the right for the, to have this land. And they're like, who's, who's what? king? No, who's who are you talking about? What are you talking about? Yeah. But, you know, I mean, this is such a, colonist state of mind they just swing in there and take yeah. over the place and anybody who doesn't do what they want to do are enemies of the state and they get killed that's pretty yeah. much i mean in a nutshell the <laughs> that's colonialism the, yeah <laughs> if i had to put it into one <laughs> sentence uh Yes, yeah, so that's what they were doing. They, they brought all their european diseases with them as well smallpox diphtheria measles whooping cough. So if they weren't um, overworked uh, to death, then they died of some horrible European disease. Because the indigenous population didn't have any no immunity. resistance. No, no. Yeah. So this is like, okay, so 15th century, 16th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sugar so kind of takes over um, being shipped back to the UK. So when you, so going a little bit backwards to where there's Madeira. Henry VIII was tucking into Madeiran sugar. 
just to okay. give us a little um, historical point that we can maybe, you know, um, uh, think about, because everyone knows Henry VIII. Mm-hmm. So he's having Madeira and sugar, but it's starting to get very expensive. What's also happening is the Portuguese are going down to Brazil. Okay. Initially, to take to take the uh, uh, wood from there to take to Madeira, but they realise the best off just staying staying in Brazil. And interesting, interesting enough, with me being here in Newfoundland, mm. they would stop here mm-hmm. uh, for supplies, trade the salt cod, yes, bring it back down to Brazil, which is that sort of. We have a lot of Portuguese uh, place names and stuff here. Mm-hmm. Sort of a trail called the Bacalao Trail, which means cod trail in Portuguese. Right, so. okay. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, everyone was... The, the Portuguese um, were, unfortunately, you know, real pioneers, as it were, when it came to the sugar trade mm-hmm. and to the slave trade, the, the transatlantic slave trade, I mean. It was, it was the Portuguese who set up the first proper you know, transatlantic slave, slave trade. And this is in Brazil. This is actually on Madeira and the Canary Islands. Oh, okay. Just to rewind a little bit. Yeah. So actually, I'm going to rewind a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so mid, mid-16th mid century, there's, a, there's a, a, a pioneer, buccaneer, in other words, pirate, I mean, they use all these words, euphemisms. What they mean is pirate. From Portugal, going down the uh, coast of Africa, looking for spices and gold, ivory, to bring back to court so he could impress uh, the royal court when he came home. He captured some men. And he thought, these would be quite exciting slaves to take back to the court as some exotic thing to look at, which is a very yes. a very common thing to do in every single country in Europe at the time. Yeah. Obviously, it's not Take okay. Take back a dark-skinned person and yeah, show them off. But it was normalized at the time. Yeah. So that's not the shocking thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the shocking thing. Okay. But the, the people said that so they, they captured some Muslim men. Some of them were of Middle Eastern descent and some were from African descent. And they said, look, you can't capture us and make you slave, make us slaves. We're men of God. You're men of right. God. All right, we don't necessarily agree <laughs> about the fine <laughs> details, but we're basically yeah. worshipping the same God. So Gonslaves, that was his name, this, this buccaneer. He kind of thought, well, you've got a point there, actually. So the, the, the Muslim guys said, well, this is what you should do. Over there... And in my mind, they're just pointing generally to Western Central Africa. They said, we know a load of people who would be excellent slaves. In fact, they want to be slaves because these guys are the sons of Ham. And Ham was the son of Noah who was cursed by Noah to a life of servitude. And not only that, he extended extended it to all of his offspring. And some... Well, I mean, it was a brilliant uh, excuse. It's a very convenient <laughs> but, argument. It's a, yeah, a convenient <laughs> argument. And you get told, oh, these people want to be enslaved. They're even more exotic because nobody in Europe had even come across them at this point. That's right. what they did. And in that one meeting, the germ 
of the transatlantic slave trade of Africans began. So all these Portuguese people go to Africa to get these people that supposedly want to be enslaved. Yes. According and to their thoughts. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's something they kept on, you know, over the, the, the next few centuries, they kept saying these people want to be enslaved. It, they're having a nicer time here on the plantations than they were having at home. You know, it was the most horrible, evil and cynical propaganda that you can yeah. think of really, you know. And unfortunately humans are not un- unfamiliar with bad propaganda. Yes. And by the way, I'm not Muslim bashing, but I keep saying it's Muslims. <laughs> no, I mean, no, they, it's unfortunate. They didn't, they didn't go like, they don't want to get turned into slaves. They had some decisions to make, you know. If you had a choice, you would say, don't take me, take say, this so, person over here. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not judging. <laughs> they them. really want it. Yeah, indeed. Oh my, um, uh, so that means, yeah, because all the, I mean, most of the literature I saw when I was growing up, it was always like, they took boatloads of people from Africa, brought them over to the Caribbean, mm-hmm. made them into slaves. But there were more than just Africans. You had, you had Muslims. You had Indian. Yes, when, when the slave trade was finally abolished, the plantation owners needed to get um, workers. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of Africans had to stay because they were not. Um, financially able to, to get away from, from some islands in the West Indies. <clears throat> so, yeah, the, 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 the planters just said, right, let's, get, let's just collect people from around the world. Yeah, we got uh, Spain, Ireland, England, uh, China and India were the main places. Right. Yeah, because, I mean, there was a small thing about Newfoundland's heritage mostly in the beginning was English, Irish, and we'd come over um, for the fishing season and fishing seasons would be up to two years. Mm. So the English captains would come stop at Ireland, pick up Irish fishermen that volunteered to work over here in Newfoundland, and they conveniently forget to pick them up and take them back. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So... You know, slave labor is rampant in every culture, unfortunately. Yes, I mean, got, yeah, I mean, it's it's not like they invented slaves. The point, <laughs> no. But um, I suppose the difference is, whenever people have taken slaves before, it's usually because um, they're in the way. They're in a yes. Someone wants to move into a country, take over it. Prisoners of war. Um, they'll kill some, and they would um, maybe take the, you know, the nobles. But everybody else yeah. would, would essentially be made into slaves. Again, another Which aside, I... when I was doing research for spices, mm-hmm. the Dutch went into, I think, the West Indies and basically slaughtered thousands of people and brought in their own slaves to work in the... the yeah, towns. the Dutch were <laughs> uh, were terrible. They were very much um, doing the trading rather than the making of sugar. They did for a bit yeah. in Brazil. They took over a little bit of Brazil, but they didn't really have the... Uh, either the aptitude or maybe they just couldn't be bothered because it was such hard work. <laughs> but they taught the English how to do it. Oh, okay. Mm. And yeah, down in Brazil, a lot of the soil is a really slippy case, clay soil called masapi. And it's not fit for um, oxen or for horses. They just slip all over the place. It's right. Impossible. Because 
I mean, the amount of water sugar needs is huge. So it was always yes. just a slippy mud fest. So they had to do everything by hand, the poor old slaves down there, which was pretty grueling, but the only way you could do it. But the, the Brits, or, well, the English, I should say, they were hanging out with the Dutch and they thought, okay, we need to get on get in on this sugar stuff because people are making loads of money. And they took over the smaller West Indian islands from the Spanish, so Barbados, okay. the Nevis Islands, <laughs> quite um, obscure ones, Trinidad, Tobago, those kind of places. Really small compared to the, you know, places like Cuba or Hispaniola. Right. And what they did was they essentially did exactly what the Dutch did, including the doing it by hand. Even though they didn't have to do it by hand because there was no clay soil on the West Indies. Oh, okay. So they would or, make... Okay. Well, okay. So there's either one of two things has happened. Either they've gone, oh, we're just going to do it like the Dutch did it because that's how we saw it. So we're just going to replicate it. Or they said, oh, we can make them do this because it's going to be so horrible. It'll help us control them. I have a feeling it's the latter of those two things. Yeah, it could be a little of column A, a little of column B. Might be a little bit. But <laughs> yes, they really... When the English got on board, that's really when the cruelty went through the roof, I suppose. And they really um, used the idea of them being servants and made them not human and actually put that into legislation, into into law, that they were not fit to be judged by the same, you know, uh, as as white Europeans. They were... Um, but after a while, though, you have the people in the UK who were abolitionists. And well, so... That took, that took a while, though. That took a few hundred that years. A, that took a few hundred years, yeah. Um, yeah, it didn't happen overnight, unfortunately. <laughs> no, it took a long time. Uh, and the Brits... So people are slaves are treated as people. Yeah, they're, they're not treated as people. Um, they would be punished severely for min- very minor things. Um, right maybe having a chew on some cane or something like that before it's been yeah um before it's been through the mills you know they get severe beatings a moderate whipping was considered mod- 50 50 lashes was a moderate yes whipping. so that's like a standard um punishment that's going to put you out for at least a week i'm sure um wow. all the horrible infections it's such high temperatures and high humidity that you know that people get infected um well and like you said with the wounds. with the soil conditions and you know probably because they're considered a commodity they're not really being taken care of i know in the U- in the us you had up to like 20 people living in a space of 10 or was it 100 square feet mm. and so i'm assuming similar living conditions would be down there yeah, so they'll be typically set up in huts made from leftover cane rinds. That's what they make the yeah. huts out of. Uh, and they would be given a mat, maybe perhaps a spoon and perhaps a bowl. And that would right. be their only and possessions. Going through your, your book, you said that the growing conditions is what mostly wet. Mm-hmm. And they're harvested during the dry season, which is a few months in, what, January? It is January, yeah. It lasted quite the 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 season actually lasts last several months, but it began in January, yeah. 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 So not the best for anybody living or or dead. <laughs> no, it was the, the, I mean, one of the few um bits of comic relief that I could find in, in the book was the hell that the English were going through 
trying to keep mm. up appearances <laughs> during yeah. this time because I mean when it gets but when it gets to seventy degrees for me I start you know passing out so I lived and I lived in Houston for a couple of years I found that very difficult so if I oh, was I having to um, live uh, you know on the on the islands wearing a periwig and a hat and several yeah. layers of clothes stockings buckled shoes tucking into roast beef high humidity <laughs> puddings <laughs> like a idiots absolute idiots yeah. um so it was one of the few times where i could actually rub my hands with a bit of glee uh, <laughs> so, so some of the dark side is funny at least yeah, you know I'm, i do I'm get the similar. opportunity i get the opportunity to punch up a little bit in, 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 in the book <laughs> i'm of similar english stock i like my 20 degrees centigrade, a light breeze. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. It's 19, it's 19 degrees C. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. But what, 58? 68? Uh, something like that? Yeah, yeah this around, is just, yeah, just good for me. High 50. Just right. Just right. Um, but anyway, so yeah. They, they were, <laughs> I know. And all, their food was, all their food was going off. So they were right. making, they were trying to make bread from moldy flour, wheat wheat flour, Ugh. and not eating the cassava bread that the indigenous people and the slaves were eating because they were eating it. So they'd, right. they'd rather eat mo- horrible bread made from moldy flour than eat perfectly good food because the savages wow. ate that. You know, and one thing that really runs through is just how... N- Nice and uncynical, a lot of those indigenous peoples were, and yet the propaganda mm. was: these are savages. We need to improve them. Uh, when you know we're the savages, by we I mean yes, all yeah. white Europeans and their descendants. You know, we're, we're, we're yeah. only the, so. The thing is, I mean, there's been loads of stuff in the news, you know, and it's been happening. I'm not, I'm not sure about Canada. We don't tend to get that much news from Canada uh, here, but certainly in the US and in the, in the UK, the Black Lives Matter proce- protests, there was lots of mainly, and I know this is a sweeping statement, lots of mainly white middle-class men. Yeah. I, I'm white and I'm a man, and I'm from a working-class family, although I guess yeah. <laughs> being a food historian <laughs> is not essentially a working-class job, but, you know, certainly come from that stock so i'm not um having a go but they were having a complete meltdown because they'd been told that great britain was great i mean it's great in the name isn't there yeah <laughs> so we must be great um we were the first to abolish slavery great uh and we went around doing all these amazing things around the world you know because that's what we're essentially taught in in schools yes um and it's just not the case and they're having a complete meltdown there's a i'm not sure if it came to to came to canada but there's it, it's just emblazoned on my memory of a man trying to save the winston churchill statue because a few statues had been thrown into the docks and things you know ex right. ex-slavers so a lot of people got very worried and they were standing guarding the winston churchill um <laughs> statue giving Nazi salutes 
Oh my. So you're like, where do you even start to unpack that one? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you sat them down. So, you know, we've been fed, again, by we, I mean white Europeans, um, we've been fed this nonsense for absolute centuries and we're still believing it. And people have had their the rug pulled from under their feet. I mean, historians have known this yeah. for decades and decades. It's only just yeah. filtered down, of course, you know, to every day. People have had the rug pulled from under their feet. They've been told all their lives that they're living in a great country that does great things. And suddenly some some people, some young people, turn around <laughs> and tell them, no, that's that's bollocks. Sorry, I swore. No, it's fine. That's nonsense. It's not a swear word here. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so quite rightly, they've been, had their noses put out of joint. You know, you can see why they would get angry. Yeah, at, at that. So we've got some real work to do, and that's when I was when I was just working out the chapters of the book. The Black Lives Matter protest was happening, so I, wow. I really felt that I had to try and connect the dots between um, getting the first slaves from Africa and in the mess that we're in now. Because if because it's I'm certainly not overstating it. If it wasn't for sugar, there would be no British Empire. No, I, I believe that totally, yeah. And, totally. If they, and if it wasn't for slaves, there wouldn't have been the sugar that was produced. I mean, sugar was yeah. fueling, not just uh, the money that was being made from it, but it was literally fueling uh, wars the you know, in the soldiers' yeah. bellies or in the workers in the factories as it got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So, so yeah, so I really wanted to connect those dots. I, I felt like I, I had to had to do that because seeing those guys giving the Nazi salutes, I was like, right, people need to know how we got into this situation. And then they'll see, in fact, then they'll see that it's not white people that are the problem. It's, it's, a, it's a white patriarchy of quite a few yeah. very rich blokes. Yeah, it's and, a whole bunch of old white guys. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, these people also control, without getting too political, you know, they're controlling no. the media, they're controlling the, the newspapers, and they've had the strategy for decades now of yeah. immigrants taking your jobs. Yes. When really what we should be doing, and back in the days of the abolitionists, you know, the white working classes stood, stood metaphorically, because they weren't literally there, <laughs> stood shoulder, shoulder to shoulder with the slaves. Yeah, they thought. And I got a little bit of glee when I read about the uh, the the riots that happened around Christmas, the slave riots in was it in the Caribbean? Mm-hmm. They basically just said enough is enough and just started hanging a whole bunch of English guys. <laughs> yeah, they, so they they did have every now and again, and so yeah, so it was, Getting back to the slaves again. <laughs> we went around the houses a bit there. Yeah, I mean, they did break them down completely, you know, because it was lawful to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was those things in place to say that they're, they're not human. So people, I guess, wouldn't feel guilty. Yes. Assuming that's what it's there for, or one of the reasons it was there for. People. Yes, exactly. Um, so I don't know how. I find it, I find it impossible to see, but they did empower themselves enough, fairly infrequently, really, but they did manage to do it enough to, you know, attempt at least revolutions. So none none of them were ultimately successful. So do you think that um, sort of, 
what kind of ended the sort of slave trade? Was it the abolitionist movement or were it was abolitionist movement? Yeah. So that was made up of um, some ex-slaves, some freed slaves, of which Alardo Equiano was one of them, and he's written an excellent um, autobiography. You know, of his okay. whole journey through slavery from being captured in Africa, you can you can read it as a Google book. Um, it's 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 a shocking but very well written um, book. I would recommend anybody to um, to read it because awesome. there's very few slaves' voices heard because yes. they were never taught to write. Yeah, his history is written by the winners. Exactly. So that's one of the few things. Alardo Equiano is called. Okay. Um, so what happens to sugar now that you know you don't have this sort of mass army enslaved to grow it for you? So what happens is, so the abolitionist movement says, let's shall we just option A? Let's just get rid of the whole shebang. Or should we do things a little bit more slowly and first get rid of the slave trade? Right. First, because then the planters won't be getting any more slaves. They'll have what they have, and they'll have to take better care of them. Okay. And they thought, they, they weren't happy with that choice, but they thought that's the that's going to be the compromise. So let's just go with the compromise anyway, because there's no way we're going to get rid of it straight away. No. It went Making through. too much money. <laughs> yeah. They got on board... Um, uh, a guy called Wilberforce. He was an MP, an independent MP. Got him on, William Wilberforce. They got him on side. He tried to get an act put through, I think, 17 times, and it failed every single time. Wow. But eventually the Whigs, who were the kind of more left-wing um, party at the time, eventually started to listen. And so we're talking, this is the cusp of the you know uh, uh, 19th century, 1800s. Eventually... It was the big point, discussion point of the general election. And the Whigs won. They put it through again, and it won with a landslide. Okay, nice. So, great. So, the next step was to get rid of the actual um, slaves themselves. Or at least, sorry, get rid of the... uh, Make it illegal to have slaves. That took a while. And uh, what happened was, this is just... It's so miserable so again compromise there's so many compromises were made that basically nothing changed the planters were saying what are we going to do with that workforce you're just going to take them away so they said okay here's the compromise we'll make all the slaves um apprentices instead and they will go through a seven year apprenticeship they won't get paid for their apprenticeship because it's an apprenticeship, but they yeah. will be, um, I guess, um, made fit to go into society, you know, anglicised. So that, that was what was happening in theory. What actually happened was they just treated them like slaves. And yeah. um, any anybody under the age of seven was automatically freed. But what do you do if you're freed and you're seven? Yeah, exactly. Where can you go? <laughs> Your parents are free. Where do you go? Exactly. Yeah. Um, women were worked so hard when they were pregnant because any child that was born was free and the planters had no legal obligation to look after those babies. 
So, so it the, sounds the like they kind of work. just made them indentured servants. They made them indentured servants. Yeah, it was just yeah. basically that again. It was really <laughs> horrific. Um, and the slaves were all saying, hang on a minute, we're meant to be free here, aren't we? Yeah. Sod this. So they really, you know, obviously caused up a massive fuss. There, were, there was loads of um, fights with the, with the slaves and the planters. But eventually it happened, but they were stuck. They couldn't go anywhere. And yeah. one of the first parts of call was to get Indians in, Asian Indians, East right. Indians, if you like, because in the meantime, the English Empire, actually it's British Empire at this point now, had, of course, started taking over China. So they sent a mm. load of indentured workers over from, from India. They opened up they opened up to the Irish, you know, I mean, all the kind of um, countries and, and races that, you know, are unfortunately known for, you know, being treated very poorly. Yes. Because this these are the um these are the consequences of those decisions that were made all those centuries ago. You know, we're still dealing with right. them. So and now this is like the nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. Chalk uh, sugar's been kind of everywhere now it's in the u.s yeah everyone's eating it at that point yeah everybody can afford to eat it at that point and then um you have products being made with sugar Mm -hmm. you have molasses you have sweets i mean you had touches of that in medieval times because you had confit you had basically you know little seeds wrapped in sugar many Mm -hmm. many many times yeah (laughs) but you know what I mean, if you look at the 18th century, mid-18th century, I mean, I've, I've just been doing some research about um, households, you know, large households. And, you know, you look through accounts, and they're buying plenty of sugar, but bearing in mind how many people they're feeding, you right. know, especially at big dinners and things. It, I mean, I could have made a mistake, but I don't think I have. <clears throat> Reg- normally, on a normal day, you know, even your lords, you know, and his family or whatever, were probably eating about a teaspoon of sugar a day. It's not a lot. It's not a lot. I put that in my tea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, there, there wasn't, it wasn't a huge amount. At least of white sugar. I mean, they were using yeah. other things. But, you know, the, the it took a while for people to be really eating a, a lot of a lot of sugar. It's, it's the 18th century when... Um, right. Sorry, 19th century, 1800s, where everybody's eating it. Um, it's poor and quality. Because it, came, it became but, so cheap. It became so cheap. So your working classes were putting molasses in their tea yeah, because they couldn't afford sugar. How you could taste the tea with a lot of molasses in there, I don't know, but <laughs> fine. So, and eventually, you know, but there's always pressure by, you know, that the planters, whether it was from East India or the West Indies, there was always someone there who could afford to buy some people out and consolidate it. Even bigger, it's super massive plantations with just a couple of yes. owners and you know it starts to trickle down and before you know it certainly by you know the victorian era the, the second half of the victorian era it's a commodity product and right. everyone's eating absolute tons of the stuff so you have companies like cadbury's shipping yes. in tons yeah. and tons so, of sugar yeah this is where you get your famous brands the Cadbury's on our end of the pond, your side of the pond, Hershey's and Mars. Yes. Um, here, was it Rogers? Is a, I think it's Canadian sugar company. 
but they, again, they use sugar beets. Um, but I was reading, I mean, this is a Christmas podcast, so we just have to talk about Christmas at some point. Uh-huh. <laughs> I read that uh, in your book, you said that Queen, uh, was it Queen Victoria commissioned Cadbury mm-hmm. to send chocolates to all the soldiers during the yes. war? Yep. Yeah, that's what she did. Yeah, as a Christmas but, present, a box of chocolate, a, a tin, a box tin of chocolates to yeah. every, yeah, every soldier in the, in the Boer War at the, at the time. In, in, and we're in not South talking Africa. like a box of celebration. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, um, Mr. Cadbury, his first name escapes me. Oh, I, I can't no remember. He was... Um, uh, what was he? He was a Quaker. A Quaker. <laughs> yeah, which is he like a, a, a pacifist. Yes, yes. I mean, the Quakers were the ones that really got people, you know, interested in or focused on the uh, um, the abolition movement. But anyway, yes. So, so he's like, there's no way I'm doing this, milady. <laughs> yeah. Thank no, you, no, but no. Yeah, no way. And... But she, who says no to the queen? Exactly. It got to the point where she had to insist. So he yeah. said, right, okay, well, let me have a think about it. <laughs> and um, he got in contact with uh, Roundtrees and Fry's, yeah. two of the companies all run by Quakers. And they decided, all three of them, you always think of these kind of manufacturers to um, kind of be warring against each other. But this was a, a bit of collusion between them. And they said, look, yeah. let's all do it. And they did have however many thousands of boxes of, of, of chocolate, tins of chocolate. Yeah. But it had to have no markings at all, no branding or anything. So you just got this so plain got, box yeah, with, with nothing, with just chocolate in it, yeah. <laughs> chocolate sweets. So we didn't, they didn't want to know where it, they didn't want the soldiers to know that it came from, came from them. I mean, I'm sure they all knew, but you know, I guess yeah. it's, it's the principle I mean, of the thing, I suppose. Not that many um, manufacturers of chocolate at the time, you kind of, you know, connect the dots. <laughs> mm. But yeah, I mean, we talk about them uh, being pacifists. Uh, you know, they, they were involved in the slave trade. Uh, I, and it, it's, the Cadbury's have just come up in the news. I'm not sure if it's come to, um, to Canada, but it's been going on, it's been going on a few years. And I don't know how I didn't come across it when I was writing the book, but it's just really popped up in the news now that um, cocoa plantations where cocoa, uh, where Cadbury's buy their chocolate from, Mm-hmm. Uh, has had decades of um, child exploitation, essentially slavery going on under yeah. under their noses. I'm fairly sure that perhaps they didn't know it was going on. Right. Because you know, I know you can buy like fair trade chocolate nowadays. Yes. Yeah. So it's important assuming... to buy. It's really important to buy fair trade chocolate. Um, it's not always that much more expensive right. than the regular chocolate. Perhaps a little bit. See, when the what's really weird is you see, when the fair trade movement really got going, um, they was trying to get the government on board, right, and the um, food manufacturers on board, and the food manufacturers say, no, there's no way that no way the British people are going to spend an extra what five pence or whatever it would have been yeah. for their chocolate bar or for their jar of coffee or for their bag of tea or whatever yeah there's no way they'll do that putting words into our mouths basically and that was just a belief yeah. and assumed for ages but then fair trade did get going and actually we were very happy to pay 
the extra two or three pence or whatever it was. You don't really notice. <laughs> yeah. Um, and before you know it, people are putting, you know, fair trade stamps on or um, rainforest aligned stamps on. And all, all of a sudden now they're really having to pull up their, pull up their socks. But because of these really long food chains we have now of food moving all around the country, ingredients moving all around the world mm-hmm. to different parts, you know, so there's so much opportunity for dubious people to produce food, you know, in conditions, you know, that no worker should be found in. And that's gone yeah. on recently um, in in the West Indies with 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 Cadbury's. Which makes a they point just of trying know. to I don't trying to buy as local as possible. I know it's hard to do with sugar. Well, you but... can with sugar though. You can buy beet sugar. Yes, that's local. I can buy UK sugar. That's that's the number one thing to do. I mean, there's no well, there shouldn't be exploitation. It's a first, you know, we're first world countries. There's a proper minimum wage. Yeah, people can only work a certain amount of hours per day. So, from a point of exploitation, it's a good thing to do. Environment, there's no how well comparatively few food miles, and yes. there is less energy required to make the final product, and produces fewer kind of noxious chemicals. Yes. So if you can, sugar bee is the, is the way to go, I would say. Or honey. <laughs> or honey. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, the other thing is, yeah, don't eat sugar, but come on. Is that going to yeah, happen? come on. <laughs> is that going to happen? Pandora's box has been opened. Can we put it all back in there? I don't think we can. So we have I to, mean, um, you know, um, make other choices. Physiologically, we're hardwired to like it. Our yeah, bodies I mean, need carbohydrates. And our brain needs glucose. It, yeah. Nothing else will do. Yeah. You know, so you can't get rid of sugar completely. No, but you can get you rid need of... It, you need something. Yes, but the sugar is in things. It's in... Um, fruit. It's in fruit. I mean, honey's a... I mean, so things like honey and things like... Um, uh, oh, hang on. My battery's about to go. You'll have to cut this oh. bit out. It's on... Sorry. Hang on a minute. It was plugged in. This will probably wrap up soon anyway. Yeah. There we go. Sorry about that. There we go. It unplugged itself. I didn't realize. (laughs) What were we saying? Yeah. um, Um, Our our brains run on sugar. Our brains run on sugar. So (laughs) it's how how I start the book. Uh, Oh, okay. There's a dark history of sugar. Why Why is it so dark? Why do we love it so much? Why do we love it so much that we're doing all these, all these bad things and harm we're ourselves in too much of it? Because we are hardwired. We've, we've evolved um, to eat. And before sugar came, it was honey, of course. That was the yeah. big sugar. It's, it's about 98, fruit. It's 98% sugar. Well, fruit is mainly water, I would yeah. argue. <clears throat> when it comes to the pure stuff, it's honey. honey. And we... You know, groups, you know, small groups who could get honey quicker than other groups or stop groups getting it as well, uh, could evolve larger brains. Larger brains meant you could do more cooperation, more problem solving. And suddenly what you get is a, a runaway selection. Now, I'm not saying sugar caused the evolution of man. <laughs> That'd be going a bit far, but it fueled yeah. the evolution of man because we could yeah. only use sugar for our brains. So it was, we needed all the sugar to grow brains and grow bigger brains that were also more more complex. 
If we didn't have the sugar, that couldn't have happened. Wow. That's okay. a simple fact. So yeah. we evolved to always think about it because it's, it should be a very rare, dangerous to dangerous to find because you're climbing up trees or whatever or yeah. in caves to, to get these bees nests. And it should be rare, should require a lot of thought. So you have to think about it a lot. But we've got so, so you, good yeah, at getting hold of sugar now. sending out signals. Yeah, but we're so good at getting it now. <laughs> Feed me. <laughs> it's as simple as that, you know, unfortunately. And I'm as bad as anybody. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm on my high horse telling people that have got really bad diets uh, because I eat too much sugar as well. Yeah. And I there's mean, plenty of times. Of chocolate. Yeah, I mean, I'm right. There's a, cha- <laughs> there's a chapter on um, sort of diabetes and various other diseases caused by eating sugar. And, you know, I'm happily chewing on a Mars bar, writing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm in it too. I, I'm one of the um, uh, junkies, in inverted commas, too. What can you do? It's so yeah. nice. I mean, obviously, you can't think about the Christmas season without thinking about sugar, because it's practically in everything. Um, we wouldn't be anywhere without, you know, our sweets at the end of the meal or... Or puddings. Yeah, there's chocolate uh, coins you get in your stocking, all that. Yes. Kind of yeah, we've got such <laughs> amazing, oh, I have just amazing childhood memories of chocolate. <clears throat> Excuse me, exactly. chocolate and, and various different sweets. So sugar, do you have a favorite canes. Christmas dish? Oh, do I have a famous Christmas dish? It's got to be a, a mince, favorite one. A mince pie. I mean, got, okay. I, I have a sweet tooth, um, a, pro- a proper, you know, British mince pie. So there's. Well, no meat, unfortunately, in a mince pie anymore, but lots of dried fruit (laughs) and uh, brown sugar and grated apples and things like that. I really like them. There's lots of bad ones. If if you buy your own mincemeat mixture uh, for a mince pie, you're not going to get a good mince pie. You need to go and look in some books. Go go find Mrs. Beaton's book of household management. She's got some good mincemeat recipes in there. I mean, I just can't go to Sainsbury's and pick up a six pack for... (laughs) I mean, you can't... Look, I mean, I'll eat them. (laughs) I'll eat anything. It's it's some combination of fat, sugar, and flour. So I'm going to eat yeah. it. <laughs> but if you if you've um, never made your own mince meat, um, a made your own mince pie, I I say you've never had a mince pie. There we go. So is that yeah, your favorite shocker. thing to make for Christmas? Yeah. Do you know what? They're really popular still. And I used to make Mrs. Yes. Be- I used to make Mrs. Beaton's um, mince meat, which does have beef in it. And okay. It was. People went nuts for them. I thought they thought it was absolutely delicious. I've made my own mince pies, and I—I I mean, I think only during the Christmas season they bring out beef suet in the butcher because I don't mm-hmm. think you can get it during the regular season. No, there's just no point. Nobody really wants it. It's—it's it's more yeah. trouble than it's worth. Probably keeping hold of it. No one's <laughs> going to buy it. Yeah, exactly. except for me. I turn up <laughs> to the butcher all year round, try and get some get some beef suet off them. Yeah, I'm probably the only one. <laughs> but um, the other thing that I really like is trifle. I do like a trifle. Oh, I love a trifle. It's a love or hate um, food. <laughs> Some people think oh, it's all mushy and it's jelly and it's yeah. sponge in it and it's soaked in and soggy. I oh, swear, I someone just saw. I got all this Christmas cake that's left over. What am I going to do with it? I know. Let's put some pudding and syrup and and Madeira wine or sherry and just slop it into a bowl and they'll eat it. <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. I mean, you can overdo the sherry. I mean, people yeah. have made the mistake of putting lots of cheap sherry in their cherry trifles and ruined it. <laughs> it should be a seasoning, if if nothing else. Yes. Uh, yeah, a, a proper trifle. 
it's a thing to behold. Nice. Well, Neil, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. That's all right. Thank you very much for asking. It's a pleasure. Tell people where they can find you and your book. The book should be out in the latter half of July, 2022. So it's you can uh, pre-order it if it's not quite out yet. The precise date keeps changing. We've had some problems with Brexit and things getting out on time. <laughs> but it should be there. And then for your UK listeners? It's already out in, in the UK. Yeah, been out um, a month. So that's available from all good bookshops. And probably a few bad <laughs> ones as well, like Amazon. <laughs> and your blog is BritishFoodHistory.com. That's right. Yes. And um, yes, and I've got a podcast as well, um, the British Food History Podcast, which uh, I've just tied up a season and I'm just about to put together another season. Awesome. So I'm kept busy. And I know I follow you on Twitter. Are you on Instagram as well? I am. I'm not very good at Instagram. No, I neither to take am I. take photographs. <laughs> I need to start getting better. So I try, but no, it's, it's Twitter where I uh, I like to spend my time on social media. At, at Neil Buttery. It's an easy one to remember. And with the last name like Butter, you have to go into food. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe that um, I'm the only one of the butteries that I know of that has gone into it. Strange, isn't it? <laughs> Again, thank you very much. And uh, if you haven't picked up Neil's book, please do so. It's an amazing, fascinating read of the amazing history of sugar. Thanks again to Dr. Neil Buttery for joining me on the Seasons Eatings podcast. His book, A Dark History of Sugar, is found wherever you buy your favorite books online. Uh, I'll put links to the book and Neil's blog in the show notes. It was a fascinating and amazing read, uh, diving into the history of the slave trade, plus a little bit of science and a little bit of English history about sugar and its production. And I encourage you to get this book uh, for yourself or for a gift for the Christmas holidays for any foodie lover that you know, or any history lover that you know. This was a fascinating, fascinating read. If you enjoyed this conversation I had with Dr. Neil Buttery, please let me know at seasonseatingspodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you'd like to hear more conversations with food writers, food history buffs, or even uh, Christmas history buffs, please let me know. Again, all the links to the show can be found at seasonseatingspodcast.com.